Well, we have begun this study in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, regarding the kindness and severity of God. And what a study it is. Uh, in fact, we last time we just kind of scratched the surface as we began to look at the kindness of God, uh, both in the original language, the language we determined is the word for kindness is Christatos in Greek, uh, and we looked at that closely. We determined that that word has to do with a useful kindness as opposed to a useless kindness, and I'll define that a little bit more in this lesson. Um, we discovered that the kindness of God in Romans 2.4 is that which leads us to repentance. That we none of us just comes to repentance because one day we wake up and decide to repent. Rather, it's a result of God's uh, previous work on our heart and mind and will, drawing us to his Son, and that we behold by faith the Son, and we are drawn to him. And that brings about kindness. So the acceptance of God in his kindness precedes repentance. Now that might kind of uh, jostle some of you. If you've grown up in a tradition where you're told that, that repentance is what causes God to act in your favor, you're going to have to kind of go a 180 on that. You're going to have to put on a new pair of glasses and understand that it is God who always takes the initiative. So it's God's acceptance and his kindness that leads us to repentance, just as it is the Spirit's work of regeneration in us, that being born of the Spirit, that leads to saving faith, faith itself being a gift. So, so much of what we do when we turn to the text of Scripture is that we're, we're reordering our thinking. So many times, especially as young Christians, and if we're not being taught well, we bring a lot of our old thinking into our reading of the text, and it doesn't serve us well. So we have to remember the principle that God always initiates, that it is God uh, who initiates our salvation, it is God who sustains us in that salvation, and it is God who will bring it to a consummation. That's the nature of salvation. God's salvation is not probationary, and God's salvation is not temporary in his son. It is a permanent work that God begins, he maintains, and he'll bring to a consummation at that day. So, let's begin then by looking back at Romans eleven twenty two, um, just reading the text itself. Romans eleven twenty two, it says this, Behold then the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Well, this is a very sobering text, isn't it? The first thing we're told is to behold, to look, pay attention, in other words. Behold, Paul says, then the kindness and severity of God. We are to have a balanced understanding, a sober mind. We are to have the mind of Christ. And that always presents us the whole picture, the fullness of God's character toward us. 
Uh, as I said in the first uh, lesson, oftentimes churches uh, have been guilty of going to the extreme. Either way, either they emphasize the kindness of God to the exclusion of God's severity, or the severity of God to the exclusion of his kindness. And for us to grow in the image of Christ in a healthy and effective way, we need to have a balanced and full approach to the understanding of our Heavenly Father's character. And so we learn right away that we are to look and understand that there is a kindness to God and there is a severity of God. And that what we're going to do in this study, however long it takes, we're going to look contextually at this verse, meaning we're going to look at it within its immediate context. We're then going to look at it within the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then we'll look at it within the context as an overview of the whole letter to the Romans, and then in a greater overview of the context within the New Testament itself, and see how it fits even into the redemptive story throughout Scripture. So it takes a while to develop that context. But along the way, we, we walk into this glorious reality of, of the treasure that we have in the gospel. So we see immediately that there are those who experience the kindness of God and those who experience the severity of God. What we want to know, what we want to be certain about, therefore, is on what basis and to whom is God kind? On what basis and to whom does God express his kindness? And what does that look like? And we want to be clear about on what basis those who experience his severity experience it. What, what, what happens that they experience the severity of God? What does that look like and who is that? These are things that are very important for us to be clear about, lest we fall into one of those categories, either the kindness or severity of God, when we actually belong to one or the other. What I mean by that, uh, there are people today who think that they're uh, skipping through life in the kindness of God, when in fact they're living under the severity of God even at this moment. They're just oblivious. They're taking comfort in their religious tradition. They're taking comfort in some other, other uh, uh, point of rest before God other than what God calls them to so that they can truly experience the kindness of God. And so, But they're walking in this religious um, ethereal mindset where they're, they're, they're blind to their true condition and they don't, don't understand that they're walking under the severity of God now and they're moving to even greater manifestation of that. Matthew 7 tells us that there are those in the last days whom, on that last day that Jesus will say, uh, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, you who work lawlessness. And there are text after text after text throughout the New Testament that give us the warning of God's severity. Now, that should cause us to be sober. It should cause us to be uh, pay attention. It shouldn't cause us 
to uh, to freak out. It shouldn't cause us to get into some religious neurosis. The gospel is always good news, and I intend to present to you the gospel so that you can see that even the severity of God and how it's presented in the text is actually a beautiful display of God's character. How can the severity of God be a beautiful display of God's character? Well, that's what we're going to find out. We're going to discover that. In fact, I'm inviting you then to join me on a journey so that by the end of this study, that we will join Paul as he does at the end of Romans 11 in this doxology. Let me just read that to you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I wanted to read that doxology to you because the end of all good theology is doxology. I want us to understand this text the way that Paul understood it, the way that Paul intended for it to be understood when he wrote it, so that we can, from the bottom of our hearts, join him in this doxology. Now, let me just ask you, have any of you ever felt this doxology before? Have any of you ever recently said, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? Perhaps you have, and I'm happy for you. Most people don't. Most people don't live in doxology. Very few people will say, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? I mean, if you listen to the Christian television networks, that's exactly what people are doing. They're giving to get. They're being told that God wants them to give so that they, he can bless them. But Paul's reversing that here, isn't it? He's exposing that mindset, that carnal mindset. He's saying, or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So by the time we get done with this study, I want us to all be able to uh, join Paul in this doxology from the depths of our soul and rejoice in this, to the, and rejoice in the glory of God that is revealed in this study. So that takes some time. Now, few people approach Romans 9, 10, and 11 contextually so as to lead them to such a glorious doxology as I've just read. What do they do? What is it that they do then? Well, from what I can tell and what I've personally experienced to my uh, healthy shame is that they use this section of Romans to proof text their own subjective experiences, so that they're really only hearing the echo of their own voice and not the voice of the Spirit in the text. 
Another thing that people have done throughout church history is they've used 9, 10, and 11 to proof text the conclusions, their presuppositions of their theological system, and then to teach that theological system and those presuppositions as if they were the voice of God when they're not. And there's another way that people have treated Romans 9, 10, and 11, and that is just simply ignore it. Simply just treat it like a parenthesis between chapters 1 through 8 and uh, 12 through 16. <laughs> and it's just too hard to understand, or they're not quite sure what Paul is saying, so they just, they just kind of ignore it and skip through it. I have done that. I've done all three of these. So I'm not trying to be harsh or unkind. I'm just saying that there are ways of approaching this text that we want to avoid. So I want to answer, uh, what I want to ensure, I should say, is that we hear the voice of the Spirit in this study. So I'm inviting you to join me on a journey. A journey as we consider carefully the contextual reading of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as it fits into the entire letter, and why it is that Paul, who starts out, and let me just give you a yet a better idea of what I mean here. Paul starts out, Romans 9, 10, and 11, with this verse 1, of course, in, in chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, who belong to the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants uh, of the law, and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He starts out with this great expression of grief for his people. For the Jewish people. And he concludes with the doxology that I just read. So something wonderful happens with Paul as he begins this chapter himself and he concludes with this doxology. Well, today I want to, before we start exegeting and start actually going through chapters 9, 10, and 11 in a verse by verse study. I want to just elaborate today, I want to focus today more on the kindness of God to make sure that we have a pretty good grasp of what we mean when we say kindness of God. And then on the other parts of the study, we'll be looking closer at the uh, severity of God and those two things together so we can maintain some balance. So I mentioned to you already that Romans 2.4 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We discovered also in Romans 3.12 that the kind of kindness or the type of kindness, the quality of kindness that God displays out of his character is something that is devoid in fallen humanity. We know nothing of it. Uh, that text says Romans 3.12. Uh, let's see. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. Christatas there, the Greek word is translated good. Um, there is not even one. So the useful kindness of God, the kindness that is an expression of God's character, is utterly devoid 
within fallen humanity. Now, every unbeliever, everyone who, who's outside and apart from Christ, still shows a, a natural human affection, a natural human kindness. But what the standard is, is God's kindness. And Paul's making it very clear here that that is something for which fallen humanity is devoid. So we ought not look for it. So where did we find it? Where do we find it? Well, let me just look at that today based on a text in Titus 1, 4 through 7. What I want to share with you today is that Jesus himself is the kindness of God. The kindness of God is not just a warm feeling that God has toward us. The kindness of God, we've already discovered, is a useful kindness, meaning that he responds to us based upon our deepest need, our true need. It's a kindness that moves towards us in action. He just doesn't see us from a distance in our suffering and feel bad for us. He doesn't look upon us in a kind way or kindly. No, when God expresses his kindness towards us, he moves towards us in a way that's meaningful and has action. He actually takes action to address the need that's causing us our suffering. Or the need for even good things. God moves us in a way to bless us with good things. It's his kindness that we said brings us to repentance and brings us to saving faith. And it's his kindness that allows us to enjoy life. He gives us all things ritually to enjoy, the Bible teaches. That's an act of kindness. God, God moves towards us in a very concrete way. And of course, the greatest expression of that is in sending us his son into the world. So, Jesus is the kindness of God. Let me just read you the text that I'm referring to here. Titus chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Get my glasses on here. Titus 1, 4 through 7. Um, actually, it's Titus 3, 4 through 7. <laughs> okay. He says, and I'm going to begin with verse 1 to just maintain the context. Titus 3, verses uh, 1 through 7. Remind them, meaning the, the, the church, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men, for we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. And then in verse 4 he says this, But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, 
we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here we learn that when God, when Paul speaks of God's kindness appearing to mankind, he's speaking of the very concrete way of extending his son into the world. The kindness that appeared is Jesus himself. Jesus um, reveals the kindness of the son. Jesus uh, of, of the father, I should say. Jesus reveals the kindness of the Father in the Son, by the Spirit, to humanity. So that the fallen humanity is devoid of the kindness of God, we still have this expression, not in an abstract way, but in a very concrete way, in a way that is most concrete, so that God not only just moved toward us, he became one of us. The kindness of God appeared to us. We saw him. We handled him, said John. He became one of us so that the very the kindness of God, the useful kindness of God, would be, have its most concrete expression in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of his son into his right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. The whole entirety of salvation purchased on our behalf by our Lord is an expression of the kindness of God. So we must be careful to keep that overall understanding of the kindness of God. God's kindness is a useful kindness. God moves towards us in his kindness, but not in a distant, detached manner. But Jesus became man to redeem mankind. He fully identified with our humanity. Not because we were so righteous. Not because we did all the right stuff. Not because we invited him to. But because we needed him to. Not because we were looking for him to do so. I mean, the Jewish nation was looking for a Messiah. They were waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. But they weren't waiting for him in the way that he showed up. And why is that? It's because God deals with us on the basis of our most true need. The deepest need we have. And the deepest need we have is for reconciliation with the Father based upon his kindness toward us. That kindness that, again, leads us to repentance. That kindness that moves upon our heart and mind and will so that we experience the regeneration of the Spirit and come to saving faith, that faith itself being the gift of God. So God expresses his kindness towards us in the person and work of Jesus. That's the best way to think of the finished work of Christ as the greatest expression of Christatus, divine Christatus, divine kindness that God has shown the world. Everything, beloved, flows from that. Everything that we understand about God flows from the expression of his kindness towards us in his Son. It has been said that God uh, is exegeted by Jesus. In other words, he, he God is revealed in Jesus. God is not anything that Jesus does not reveal. And Jesus is not to 
any and Jesus Jesus is everything that God is to us. We need not look any further for the kindness of God than in the life, death, resurrection, and high priesthood of Jesus on our behalf. Now, <clears throat> there's something that we have to respond to in this, and that is that God has not only expressed his kindness to us in such a, a glorious, concrete fashion as to send his Son into the world, but as we discovered last time we were together, he also calls his children to share in that kindness, to walk in that kindness. I quoted to you last time Colossians 3.12, where he says, So as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Now who then is the target or the, or the focus, if you will, probably a better word than target. Who is the focus or the, the target population that to whom God's greatest expression of kindness is toward? He just says it here. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, Christatus, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all, he goes on to say in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we are to be the expression of the kindness of God that was manifested, that appeared in such a beautiful, concrete fashion as Jesus becoming human, as the eternal Son taking on human flesh, becoming one of us to live among us, to teach us, to guide us, to be, to be our guide out of the forest of sin and into the glorious sunlight of God's kindness and his death, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf, to, be, to send us the Spirit to take up residence within us so that we now share his nature. We are partaking in his nature, and we are displaying, as Jesus did, as Jesus did, the kindness of God, so that the world, though it be fallen, is not devoid of the kindness of God, because Jesus has come. He has shown us the kindness of God. He has revealed the, the kindness of God. And now you and I are charged, as the people of God, to continue that ministry of Jesus by showing the kindness of God, by displaying the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the humility of God, the gentleness of God, the patience of God in the world. Clearly, we are in a time, tragically, where that doesn't seem to be the mission of the church. 
Christianity in America has become so business-oriented, so entertainment-oriented, so inspirational-oriented, that you can't really count on somebody saying he's, he or she is a Christian and expect you're going to see the kindness of God in their character. It's become so easy to call oneself a Christian by some other, on some other basis other than the finished work of Christ and the blood of Jesus that, uh, say, as church-going or because they read a Bible or because they've been baptized or some other basis that they can continue to live like the world and show the, the old uh, Adamic character and uh, all kinds of moral decadence and behavior and still claim to be a Christian. That's the greatest tragedy of our time. All the more reason, though, beloved, that we should focus down on this text and understand the kindness of God for what it is and be certain that we, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that we are now the focus of God's work in the world so that we can go out into the world and the world has some chance of experiencing the kindness of God. So we've learned that the kindness of God is very concrete, is very useful, haven't we? So let's finish our time then by just looking at a few more texts that help us understand then how we are to give expression to God's kindness. And to do that, I'm going to turn to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 16. And there we read this. I'm going to start at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no such thing as a worldly Christian. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. There's only people in the world who show themselves not to be, even though they confess to be. If you're a worldly Christian, you're not a Christian. The love of the Father, he just said it here, is not in him. That's clear throughout Scripture. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now let's flip over to, oh, and he says, and the world is passing away, and also its lusts, by the way, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, 1 John 3.16 says this. By this we have known love. So there's a love for the world and there's a love of God. By this we have known love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers and our sisters. So there's a there's a self-giving aspect to the kindness and love of God that we are to be displaying on an ongoing basis. He just said it here. We're not to love the world. We're not to go after the lusts of the world, the pride of life, and so on. But our love has to be ordered just like our kindness. It has to be infused in us by the Spirit and then worked out in our character and how we engage each other. That's one of the gifts that we have of each other is that we come together, we bump into each other, and we have that moment to decide, well, am I going to act 
like I used to act in, in this situation, or am I going to display the compassion and the forbearance of God? Am I going to display the love of God? Am I going to display the kindness of God here? And that's what we're called to. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. There you go. The concrete kindness of God. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gives us this uh, instruction, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now what John is combating here in this letter in First John, is this meaningless spirituality that was completely turned in on yourself, completely subjective. Uh, the, the, it was an early form of what we call Gnosticism. It's all based upon knowledge and, and wisdom and, and spiritual ascendancy. Personal subjective experience. And there was no emphasis on ethic. There was no uh, emphasis on caring for one another. It was all a very subjective, personal experience at ever-increasing, ascending levels. That's what we were after in this kind of spirituality. But John's combating that here. He's saying, no, no, no. The love of God, the kindness of God, the character of God is always moving toward us in very concrete, very useful fashions. He always acts to meet our greatest need. And here, in verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Because you see, the Gnostics were saying, We are Christians. In fact, they were saying, We are the real Christians. Even though their, their spirituality was such a selfish, self-focused, subjective, inward-turned type of spirituality. Where it was all about them all the time. It was very much like a lot of charismatic spirituality today. When it's all about what I can get. It's all about what, how my greatest life, my, my self-improvement, my, my growing and getting bigger and better and, 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 and moving into greater levels of prosperity and health and, and, and wealth. And, and It's always about what the flesh just wants anyway. And yet you call yourself a Christian. And John's combating that here and saying, no, no, no. You are to be acting like children of God. You are to be displaying the character of God as Jesus displayed it. He laid down his life. It was a self-giving expression of God's kindness towards you. And you are to do the same thing. Little children, he says in verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then he goes on to balance of that uh, paragraph to, to address the fact that if we do this, and as we do this, we will gain greater assurance. We'll know in a greater and more deep experiential way that we are truly children of God because we're sharing and in interacting with one another on that way, on that same fashion that God deals with us. <clears throat> okay, James chapter 2 says this, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, see, it's very similar to what John just said, isn't it? Very concrete. The kindness and love of God is very concrete, very practical, very useful. And one of you says to them, quote, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. See, that's just the opposite of God's useful kindness. That is useless kindness. And he goes on to say, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? It's useless, James says. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Galatians 6.10 tells us, Turn there. Galatians 6.10 tells us, So then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of the faith. Galatians, as you know, Paul has was defending the, the gospel. He's defending the gospel against those who had to say that we come into the people of God and we stay in the people of God on the basis of the law and not on the basis of hearing with faith and by the work of the Spirit. There were those who were teaching that that male circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham still, still in force, instead of the power and ministry of the Spirit being the sign of the covenant today. You are people of God, and you know you are people of God because God has taken up residence within you. You are spirit people. You are the people on the planet Earth that God has taken up residence and placed his spirit within you and among you. So it no longer has to do with anything with with, uh, law-keeping and rituals and rites. It has everything to do with walking by the spirit, which, of course, is the only way that we can actually fulfill the command or the imperative to walk in the kindness of God, isn't it? Because the kindness of God is is part of the fruit of the Spirit, we learned. Okay, one more. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, reads this way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. See, these are very practical applications of how we are to live out the character of God. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast, because I did not run in vain, nor labor in vain. And so Paul is saying, show the world who you are. Let, let the character of God be displayed in the children of God to the point where you will show that you are the opposite of those who live in a crooked and perverse generation, but rather you will shine like lights in the world. So the usefulness of God versus the uselessness of um, uselessness of of human kindness is that we're talking about here today. 
We're talking about you being the depository, if you will, of God's kindness as expressed in his son. And now you are not to just rest in that, even though that's a beautiful thing to do, but you are also to go out and express it. The only hope that the world has of seeing Jesus is in you and among you. God has vested that purpose in you so that as the elect people of God, holy and beloved, as I just read in Colossians 3, we are to go out into the world and show that, that the world is not devoid of the kindness of God. We saw it first in Jesus, and now we see it in those who belong to him, who are in union with him, those who walk with him. And by the way, before I close, this is, this is true also towards our enemies. We're to show the kindness of God towards our, each other and towards those who come within our sphere of influence and even if they're unbelievers and even those who make themselves our enemies, those who persecute us. 2 Timothy 2, uh, let's see, 2 tells us, Okay. He says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and clay, and to some honor and some dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, having been prepared for every good work. He says, Now flee from youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, there's the people of God. The people of God are not known because they belong to a megachurch. They're not known because they tithe. They're not known because they uh, carry a Bible to church. They're not known by any other purpose than the character of God is being displayed in their life, in their interpersonal relationships with one another. Okay, so cleanse yourself from these things. Now flee from useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now listen carefully. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be what? Kind to all. Able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God gave, may give them repentance leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So those who oppose us, those who would be sometimes violently opposed to us in the gospel. We are not to respond in kind. We are to respond instead with kindness, teaching, patience when wronged, the gentleness, correcting those. We can correct them. We can point out their error, but we are to do so with gentleness. You're never less like Jesus than when you're acting out in harshness towards anyone. 
Let me say that again. You're never less like Jesus than when you're acting out in harshness towards anyone. You say, well, Jesus acted harsh towards the Pharisees. Well, he's Jesus. He had the authority. He had the power to do that. And he had the character to do it. Jesus spoke from a place of holiness, prophetically. And we can quote him. We can show, we can point back to those texts. We can point back to Matthew 23 and said, this is what Jesus said to them. We, that doesn't mean that we have the license, therefore, to say the same thing, to do the same thing he did. He had a position of authority and character and holiness from which he did that we simply don't possess yet. <laughs> we will someday. But we're very few of us are at that point where we can actually go stand next to Jesus shoulder to shoulder and rebuke the Pharisees and do it with such a purity and clarity and holiness. Now, we are to act gently. We are to be kind to all and teach, patient when wronged. We are to be gentle in our correction of others. Okay, one last quote regarding our enemies, Romans 12, 14. So you hearing me here? We are supposed to be reflecting the kindness of God in all that we do, but not in some, in some abstract way and not in some useless way. Rather, we are to keep always in our minds the um, image of the Christ coming into the world, of the eternal Son in the, as the expression of God's kindness coming to us in human flesh in the most concrete fashion, in order to meet the most deep need, deepest need, and that was for reconciliation with the Father, forgiveness of sins, and redemption. And then we are to act out in the same useful kindness towards one another. Keep in mind that we deal with each other on the basis of what's truly needed, not in a surface fashion. Okay, Romans 12, 14 through 21, but what about our enemies? What about those who would oppose us? What about those who call us names for being Christians? And what about the persecution that may be coming our way in the coming years? Are we supposed to be kind to them too? Well, let's read Romans twelve fourteen. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind, never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. We have no warrant for retaliation. We have no warrant for retaliation. We can set limits, we can set boundaries, and we can avoid toxic relationships, of course. But we never have warrant or permission or God's blessing to retaliate. <clears throat> Do not be wise in your own mind, never paying back evil for evil to anyone and respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, 
give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God's kindness is a useful kindness versus a useless kindness. God's kindness means he moves toward us, giving himself to us, engaging us, identifying with us. And his identification was fully manifested in, in Jesus. And it's evidenced by action, not just by word, but by word and deed, not just by warm feelings from a distance, some abstract way. God's kindness addresses our true need. God's kindness looks beyond our surface behavior and requests and meets us at the point of our need. So Jesus is God's kindness personified. And though the world is devoid of divine kindness, it can't be so amongst the children of God, beloved. We are called to be the point of God's expression of kindness in the world now, just as Jesus was. Holy and beloved of God, we are to display God's useful, active kindness in our relationships to one another and the unbeliever, and so prove ourselves to be God's people. Well, we'll end there. Next time, we'll start doing a greater exegesis, a greater study, begin with Romans 9, 1, and we'll go through, what the intention is here, is to go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, carefully, slowly, exegetically, with joyful anticipation of being able to genuinely Join Paul in that wonderful doxology that I read you earlier in this uh, lesson and do so with great authenticity and delight. May the Lord keep you and strengthen you in his grace always. Amen.